Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Today we'll be reading verses 24 through 29. Last time we learned that Nebuchadnezzar had some very bad dreams, right? And the New Age ensemble could not interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar did not say, here's the dream, now I want the interpretation. He said, I want the dream and the interpretation. I haven't stuttered. I want to hear it from you right now, or I'm going to kill all the enchanters, the astrologers, the sorcerers, everybody involved. And that would have included Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They knew they would die uh, because of this edict from the king. But again, he would not bend on it. Neb says, I, don't, I didn't stutter. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Daniel 2, 24 through 49. All right. I may have... Oh, I'm sorry about that. All right. Thanks for that, brother. Get you in line. All right. Get me in line. Okay. Now, the other day, uh, it was early morning, probably 6.15 in the morning. I turn around and Natalie's sitting up in the bed. And she says, you woke me up before I was able to finish my dream. And I said, well, I'm sorry about that. What was your dream about? She proceeds to tell me that she was getting ready to have ulcer surgery. Not only that, but the doctor had never performed such a surgery before. So she was on eggshells about that. To top it all off, there were three women that were in the room with her, and she was kind of trapped, and those three women had chronic dysentery. All right? And here's the interpretation of the dream. Those three women are members of this church. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not true about the three women being members of this church, but the dream is absolutely true. So I got really tickled about all that. But, you know, I, I, uh, I know the dream, but I don't think there's interpretation to that one at all, except for the fact that you need to be real careful about having ulcer surgery, ladies, if it's coming up any time in the future. But old Nebuchadnezzar, he's had a, a bad dream, and the 1-800 people... Are una- uh, they just can't do it. As a matter of fact, they actually say, uh, no, no one on earth can do such a thing. Remember? They also say that no king had ever asked such an outrageous thing of any of these enchanters. In other words, king, you know the ropes. You tell us a dream, and we give you a concocted story about what may take place. And thirdly, only God's can deal with your problem, problem, and they don't dwell with men. So in other words, they don't have access to them. So he shows up at Daniel's place, Arioch does, and there's a warrant for their execution and his three buddies. Daniel responds with prudence and discretion because he's confident in his God. He goes to his three friends and he says the logical thing, let's pray. Right? We learned in the first chapter that there's pressure to compromise in this world. And Daniel did not compromise. In chapter 2, we learned that we should pray and trust and seek the God, the only God that exists and has full power and wisdom. And so that's exactly what Daniel does. In desperate times, we should seek the face of God. And that's exactly what Daniel does. You may look at your situation... And you may have had situations this week, and you felt like Daniel, and Hananiah, 
and Mishael and Azariah, and you knew you should seek the face of God. But what does Daniel do after God gives him the interpretation of the dream and interpretation? He does what believers should do. He blessed the name of God forever and ever. We learned last week that he breaks out into praise to the Lord God. He gives a sacrifice of praise and he enumerates specific attributes about our God. That he is sovereign, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, that he has all wisdom, absolute power to do all things. Y'all remember that? He changes times and seasons removes kings and sets them up, gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. We, we learn so much from Daniel about the character of our God. So Daniel reports to Arioch and says, tell the king to stop the death orders because God has given him the interpretation. So he is brought before the king. Can you really do what all my religious advisors could not do? All the union members who carry the cards, who can do all these things. And Daniel responds with incredible humility. Instead of promoting himself, he begins to publicly exalt the Lord our God. Notice how it looks. Ready? Daniel 2, beginning in verse 24. Here's the reading of the word. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Arioch kind of follows the ways of the world, right? He doesn't give Daniel much credit before Daniel says, I've got the dream interpreted. And then he says, I found Daniel. Hmm. That's the way the world works, right? The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, musicians, or astrologers, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And notice, notice where he gives the credit. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. 
And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you, king, its interpretation. You, O king... The king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be divided, a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will... Mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it... Broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. The title of our sermon is The the Messiah's Eternal Reign. And I didn't give you an outline today because I basically only have one point. And I want you to write it down. Okay, this narrative, of course, has one major point. So, Daniel is told that no one can do this. And they were right when they said the gods cannot do this. Gods, small g, plural, s, right? They cannot do this because they don't exist. They were right, yet they were profoundly wrong when they thought that no one had access to the God of heaven. Correct? Because Daniel knew the God of heaven, and he knew that our God had all things and all wisdom, and he was the revealer of mysteries. Now why would the God of heaven, in all of his glory, condescend to reveal something to a despot and a tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar? Is that not a good question? Why would the God of heaven, who, who controls all things, condescend to speak to an evil tyrant like 
Nebuchadnezzar. Let's be honest, he was a wicked man. Daniel says God wants to communicate, communicate to you, let note this, what is to come. So this is going to be prophetic. You know, understand, everything Daniel hears from the Lord is going to be things that happen in the future. Primarily ending around 160 A.D., you're going to see most of what is here. However, the kingdom that endures forever, obviously, is continuing to go. But Daniel gives this interpretation for us from the Lord. But the message is not, however, just about how powerful and awesome Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is. Here's the ultimate message that will be given in this. The God of Israel is the God who is in control of all things and will establish a kingdom that will never end. That is the meaning of why and what God was saying to the future, to Nebuchadnezzar, of what was going to take place. So now this is not the sharpest knife in the drawer you're dealing with. Nebuchadnezzar's not too bright. And as soon as he understands that he's the gold, I'm gold. He's going to turn around in chapter 3, make an image of gold, right? And expect everyone to bow down to it. So he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Many of the things that Daniel says is going to fly right over his head. But I tell you this. The primary reason that God gives it to Nebuchadnezzar of future things that was going to take place was not for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit. It was for the remnant's benefit. It's for the people of God to know that a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, is on the way. That's the purpose for it. The purpose of it today is the same for us. We live in difficult times. We're agitated. We live in incredible times of upheaval. We live in times of international and national and even local things where it seems like chaos is all that reigns. At times, doesn't it feel like even our little peaceful corner of Ozark, Missouri has unraveled in the matter of weeks? Doesn't it? If you're aware of what's going on nationally, you see what's going on in North Korea, it's all over the, the world. So the God of heaven, this is, what, this is what you need to know, the very one that reveals mysteries, gives a word of prophecy of what is going to happen so that we can bank our lives in confidence in Him no matter, no matter what's happening in our present time. We can bank our confidence in the God who controls all things. Daniel's life would not get easier. Now folks, listen to me. This is moving toward chapter 7. As a matter of fact, chapter 2 and chapter 7 present the same image with more interpretation. So I, I want you to wrap your mind around this. There's an understanding that God's people are going through tribulation and will continue to go through tribulation. But God is in control. That is the lesson that he's given Daniel. Successive generations after Daniel and his generation are going to see major difficulties. Where do you find comfort? Where do you find strength and security and stability in times above evil? You go to the Word of God. You go to a God who does all things right and well, who knows all things. He knows exactly what He is doing. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now Daniel reveals to the king that the dream has to do with latter days. Again, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar fully understood this at all. But Daniel was talking about the Messianic age. He's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you're a student of the Old Testament, you saw clearly where he is in this passage of Scripture. And I hope you were reading with it with observation at hand and interpretation in your mind. So in verse 31, he begins to tell them, him, there's this ginormous statue that you saw in your dream. You are the head of fine gold, right? It is also has a chest and an arm of silver. Then you have a belly and thighs of bronze. Yet then I saw it had legs of iron and feet that were odd because they were made of iron and common clay. But each part separately identified, yet they're all parts of a whole. Y'all note that. Not four different statues representing four different kingdoms. This one grand statue with four distinct parts. So the reality is each empire will successfully incorporate the other, right? Other one that had gone before its kingdom. They're going to successfully, successively bring those other kingdoms into their own. So here's the imposing scene. Then I saw, as it were, a stone cut out without hands. Now, we have no idea how big the stone was, but it was represented here as much smaller than any of the other kingdoms in the mind. It's small. That part is actually seen cut out as small. And so, this little stone comes down and it strikes the legs and the feet and then destroys the entire statue. Now, have you ever heard of a great colossus like this being taken down with one stone? Well, no. It wasn't some gigantic transformer, kids, fighting against some other gigantic transformer, against a gigantic colossus. But here is a colossus being taken down with one small stone. The Bible says the stone becomes a mountain, fills the whole earth. Now, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar sat there thinking, dude, this is amazing. That's exactly how the dream went. I thought you were just buying some time to keep all the other guys from dying. But this is exactly what I dreamed. So Daniel proceeds to give the interpretation. Now, folks, do you think Daniel has some credibility at this point with the king? Now, all these other guys, he knew full well. That's why he said, give me the dream and its interpretation. Because he knew they were charlatans. He knew full well there's no way they're going to tell him what the dream was. But Daniel has credibility. All the New Agers uh, couldn't do it. They couldn't make up something for him. They couldn't translate what it was. But this guy has credibility. His God is in the heavens. And his God reveals mysteries and speaks to him. So beginning in verse 36, he shares the interpretation. He, notice how he addresses Nebuchadnezzar. He does so in dignity. He, he knows that Nebuchadnezzar's place has been ordained by God. Y'all do realize that God is the one who sets up kings. We just read that. So here is Daniel. And he comes with humility. With dignity to the position. And he knows that Nebuchadnezzar is worthy of respect. Not because of himself, but because of the office he has. And where God has placed him. So he recognizes the chain of command, in other words. So Daniel knows that all the kingdoms of the world are ordained by God. Yet, he doesn't shy away from telling him who gave him the kingdom. Did y'all read that? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, God, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he knows full well that the kingdom that has been given to him was given to him by God. It reminds me of Pilate 
before Jesus. Notice I didn't say Jesus before Pilate because Pilate was really the one on trial. Hello? He was. It was really Pilate. So when Pilate was before Jesus and he didn't realize the power of the Son of God, he said, don't you know that I had the power to release you or to have you killed? And Jesus says to him, the only authority you have has been given to you from heaven. Right? Well, understand something. President Trump would have no authority if it wasn't first granted to him by our God. And God will hold him and every other ruler in this world accountable uh, for him, to him, for the power that God gave them and the place they're ruling. All of them will give account to our God. So, our God establishes administrations and our God takes down administrations. That's what we see from Daniel chapter 2. Beginning in verse 21. We know what we've read. So Daniel is before the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he refused to seek favor with an earthly king by denying who was in charge. Right? God is in charge. So, Nebuchadnezzar, you might rule over just about everything that we could ever talk about. As far as space and time and all this. But there's a God in heaven who puts you in your place. You're there because of the Lord. And he says to him, you're the head of gold. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar thought to himself, check this out, I'm gold. Right? I guarantee you he did because that's the problem with most world rulers. It goes directly to their head. And when they don't know the Lord, they think that all the power and dignity and everything else belongs to them. And the fact is, Nebuchadnezzar would have said, I'm on top. Right? It starts with me. I'm at the top. This is great. And again, I don't think most powerful people think about the future, do they? But God is saying, you think you control all things, but I'm the God who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And for all time. And so, if Nebuchadnezzar would have thought about this, he'd have known what was coming. But this great and mighty Babylonian empire with incredible wealth and power, filled with temples... That became the wonders of the world. It had the bridge over the Euphrates. It it would even come down. But then there's going to be another kingdom. And this will be the Medo-Persian kingdom. In chapter 5, you're going to see that the empire of Babylon is going to crumble. And it's going to crumble to the ground in a single night. As history bears out to us. Not just the Bible, but extra biblical history tells us this. The next empire will be an empire of combined Powers. The Persians had assimilated into the Medes, into their empire. So they had some very strong leaders, but they lacked the leadership and unity of Babylon. And so notice there's the third kingdom of bronze, and notice the decreasing values of the metals. We're going down the slippery slope from metals, aren't we? And so it's going to be the kingdom of Greece. It was, a, it was as broad and wide Uh, as the world, but it was unstable as water. That's what we know about this kingdom. There was a great leader that all of you will know. His name was Alexander the Great. He would die at the age of 32 after he had conquered the entire world. And don't you know that it was God Almighty who told you this nation was going to come to power before it ever came to power. And then he says there's going to be a fourth empire. And he says more about this one than the others. This one is made of iron, and it is what? 
It is Rome. And it would defeat the divided empire. And it will suffer civil war after civil war after civil war. It is as strong as iron. That means it's going to destroy all competing empires. And it would have destructive power. And during its day, it would be symbolized as the iron heel of Rome. That would crush everyone. Daniel says it has some toe and feet problems. Everybody, uh, I better not talk about my feet, but it's not the best thing in the world. I damaged my toes playing sports all those years and messed up my toenails. And I can identify with having toe problems and feet problems, right? But that's what goes on here. It is part clay and part iron. It's going to be divided among the strong and it's going to be brittle. There's a mixture of people that are unable to be united. What is he talking about here? Well, we don't know for sure, but the conjecture is that the clay represents the apostate Jews of the Hasmonean dynasty and the Herodians in Jesus' day. We're going to read about this in the Gospels, or you will. And they did their best to bring together the Jews of Palestine and the Romans, mixing together. The Herodians were the offspring of Esau, if you know your Bible history. And it was Herod the Great who was the puppet of Rome, who would marry the high priest of Jerusalem's daughter. So technically, you do have some mixture going on that God had forbidden in times past. And when you see the Pharisees and Sadducees come on the scene, and they brought, they brought Jesus before Pilate, Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? Do you remember what they said? Now these were Jews. They said, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. Can you imagine that? So in 66 AD, the Jews would rebel. It would be started what's called the Jewish wars against Rome. And this would lead to the ultimate destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the Jews are going to continue to fight this kind of fight until 166 AD. Then note verse 44. In the days of those kings. Wow. Does that say something to you? That in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The God of heaven. In this decisive moment, the kingdom of God will begin to take shape in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was slain before the foundation of the world. The kingdom of God would take place. This, was, this will be an indestructible kingdom, unlike the kingdoms that are represented in this particular image. Although one is of gold and one is iron, it will have no kingdom after it, this messianic kingdom, and nothing will take its place. This kingdom will crush, the text says, all kingdoms. Now we know this is going to be true at the overwhelming power of the coming, second coming of Jesus Christ. Y'all know that, don't you? Have I told you lately that Jesus is coming again? But here's what you don't need to miss about this kingdom. This particular kingdom is not only coming in the future, it's already happened. It's already here and the small beginnings of the kingdom infiltrating this world is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms the world. 
And it started in the first century. And hallelujah, it's still going on today. This kingdom will never, ever end. Isaiah, and you usually only hear this around Christmas time, but Isaiah says, and there will be no end to the increase of his government. Who is that? That's the Son of God, who has always existed. So that stone that was cut out from the mountain, with no hands, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Right? For the stone cut out without hands. Why? He had no beginning. He's not like all the other kingdoms. He's in solidarity. He's sufficient within himself. He has no beginning. And he has no end. The Bible tells us in Psalm 118.22, He's the stone that the builders rejected, and has, he has become the chief corner stone. Y'all remember that? That's in the New Testament. He's the stone of Isaiah 8 that becomes a sanctuary. And those who flee to him find in him a shelter. But those who resist him, it, he falls on them and crushes them. Wow. He's the stone that the Lord will lay in Zion. You ever read that verse? I lay in Zion a sure foundation and a foundation stone. If you, don't, if you have time, look over with me to Luke chapter 20, verse 17. The reason I say that is because you know I don't give you a lot of time to turn. You should have gone to Bible drill when you were a kid and learned the books of the Bible, right? No, I'm just picking on you. Chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel, 17 through 18. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So, the strength of this little stone has increased throughout the entire world. Jesus came into this world at the right time according to the Father's will. The Bible calls it the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. It was a perfect time. I want to tell you, it was a perfect town. Right? Just thought about this. He was born in Bethlehem because that's what Micah says. It was a perfect time. It was a perfect town. And God was working in amazing ways to fulfill his word and his will. During the reign of Alexander the Great, that's the bronze part, right? You want to see how God was at work? Are you all ready for this? During that bronze phase, God Almighty does something through Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great began to think about the fact that there was no universal language. And he couldn't communicate with people. And the empire couldn't communicate because there was a language barrier. And he understood this. If you're going to build an empire, you need to have a shared language. So he put all of his best and brightest together. And they came out with Greek dialects, and they actually ended up with a Greek dialect, and it was called Koine Greek. And it was the universal language of the entire empire. That's amazing, isn't it? It will become the language of the Greek empire. You, will, you may speak any kind of native language you have, but wherever the empire is expanded, you were expected to know Koine Greek. When the New Testament was written, it was written in the language of the people, called Koine Greek. Greek. That is no accident, folks. 
That the reason that happened was so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could go to everybody's mind and ear because they had a universal language. God is in control of all things. And he even takes Alexander the Great's reign and he puts forward a language so that people would understand. That's not the end of it. When the Romans came along, for all their flaws, they had a few good ideas. That's because God put them there, right? They wanted to have effective mail systems. They wanted to have inner, inner empire communications. So they wanted effective mail systems and empire communications. So do you know what they did? They built a road system throughout all of Rome so that even today, there's a cliche that reflects this, and it's called all roads lead to Rome, right? So by the time that stone cut out without hands, entered into this world, there was a universal language and transportation system where the God of heaven could establish His kingdom. That would never end. God, again, is in control. What a contrast between the massive product of human ingenuity and the divine power of our God. So Daniel shares this information to King Neb and Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel says, well, King... It is a factual dream and interpretation. And it's going to stand right where it stands. And the interpretation is trustworthy. Don't you think Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there like, wow. That's exactly what the dream was. And now you've given me the interpretation. And think about this. This is a young Jewish kid. Don't you think Nebuchadnezzar thought, man, this 17 to 18, 19 year old in that span, he's a really smart kid. The Bible says, what a change of events. Here's a king over all the kingdoms of the world. And he is laid prostrate before a 17-year-old Jewish kid. Did y'all see it in the text? He gives homage to Daniel. Rather humorous, is it not? Here's a man who's the king of the world at that time. Gets off his throne. Most powerful man in the world. And he falls on his face before a 17-year-old exiled kid. In Babylon. Now, do you think this was an encouragement to the remnant that would come on later and read this? Do you think the Jewish people, the Hebrews, needed to hear how sovereign God was over all the kingdoms of the world and that God was going to reign with his kingdom forever and he's gonna, there's going to be a stone cut out without hands? Don't you think that encouraged them? Our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God of heaven. He's the God that will cause pagan kings to fall prostrate before exiled Jews. Nebuchadnezzar himself turns around and honors Daniel. And Daniel's God. You see it in the text. Now, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar was converted at this point. Now, we make it argue a little later after he spends his time out in the pasture. Right? We'll get to that a little later. But I don't think that's the case. I think he's just recognizing the supremacy of Daniel's God over his. You know, the world's a little bit like that. Give me Jesus as long as he's greater than the other gods. And I just treat him like an old car jack that we put in the back of the car. And we're not going to get it out unless we have a flat tire. So if, if this God kind of fits along in the, in the get me out of my problem God stack, then I'll put him over in this stack. Folks, there is no other stack. There are no other gods. They do not exist. There's only one God. And this God will subdue all the kingdoms of the world, even you. That's the lesson here. So, 
The Bible tells us how sovereign God is. He does all things well. He places people in their positions. He ordains it. So here is Daniel promoted to one of the highest positions in all of Babylon. He becomes one of Nebuchadnezzar's chief advisors. Uh, You ever wonder why Nebuchadnezzar? Think about this if you've read your Bible. Why does Nebuchadnezzar continually extend mercy to Jehoiakim and Jeremiah and a host of other Jews? Because there was Daniel. Placed there by God Almighty in a strategic time for his people. And he's standing there before the king of the world, pleading for mercy for his people. And do you think that Nebuchadnezzar, or that Daniel had his ear? This guy just interpreted my dream and told me what was going on. And there is Daniel. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel speaks of three righteous men in chapter 14. Guess who these righteous men are? Noah, Job, and Daniel. Daniel was a hero to Hebrew people. Put in a place as a deliverer. Isn't that awesome? Now, we're in exile. Y'all know the history, right? And, and Daniel is a hero because God has put him there in that place. So Daniel then will do what all good friends ought to do. You promote your good friends, right? And he speaks a word for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're placed in places of, work, of service before the king. And there's an awesome promotion. Okay, here's the point. You ready? It's going to be short. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, write this down. And you put your faith in King Jesus, then you belong to the kingdom of God right now. You need to hear this. It's not a kingdom that you're going to be a part of in the future. If you are saved by grace through faith, you are a part of this kingdom right now. The Bible says that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians 1. If you're a follower of Jesus, He is your Lord, and your Lord is the King of the world. You are His subjects, and He rules in your heart today. Don't you love the song at Christmas, Joy to the World? Oh, let Him rule in your heart. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, get this, you are a rebel. You are. Your picture is not on God's refrigerator. Your picture is actually in his post office. This is funny, but we were over in uh, Guatemala. (laughs) You care if I tell this, Zach? We were in Guatemala, and Zach was sharing the gospel. This was great. And here are Guatemalans that maybe had never heard the gospel. They'd heard Catholicism, maybe not the gospel. And Zach is going along. He's rolling. He's throwing the gospel out there, and he says, You've committed cosmic treason. Against the Son of God. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We all got tickled about that. But he's right. They, you know, even if they haven't ever heard the gospel, they still are rebels against God. And if you're lost today, and you've rejected God's Son and His gospel to you, then you are a cosmic treasonist. Because God controls all things. And He's sovereign. And if we rebel against his son, then we have committed treason against a great high God. He sent his son into this world to be kindly affectionate to you. All who refuse him are like the nations of Psalm 2 who rage against God's anointed. You ever read Psalm 2? I hope you've learned around here that if you're going to understand the sermons, you've got to read your Bible. 
I mean, that may sound like a novel idea, folks, but you're not going to understand a whole lot. And some of you may go out here and say, I'm a preacher, preacher. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Psalm 2 would remind us that the nations are raging against the Son of God, His anointed. The religious leaders in Jesus' day would say, I will not have this man rule over me. Have y'all read that? The Pharisees, and the, we refuse this man's rule. Actually, this man was more than a man. He was the God-man. He was the Son of God. And if you do that, you're like those religious leaders. You set yourself up against God and His Christ. Here's what I know, folks. You're not going to win. If you set yourself up against Him, you're not going to win because God will. Here's the good news. If you're a rebel against God and you're lost, here's the good news concerning that stone cut out without hands. Our God is an expert in subduing rebels. Isn't He though? Oh, folks. He doesn't accomplish this by force. He doesn't accomplish this with a sword. He doesn't have a gun. He does it through the love and the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He woos your heart. Because He's a loving God who draws sinners unto Himself. Isn't the gospel so sweet? That's why Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an aroma of life to those who are being saved. But it's an aroma of death to those who are lost. To rebels. The gospel doesn't have a sweet smell. But if you've been subdued by the King and you've been loved with the gospel... The aroma is the sweetest aroma that you can ever smell. Because God is in control of all things. And that means if you're saved, you belong to Him. And you're in His kingdom. And He controls all things. And now I can't see it. I need some windshield wipers on the inside of these things. But here's the deal. He's an expert. And there are many of you here today. And you raged against the God of heaven. You did. Ben, your testimony. Look, tonight, you come listen to him. Listen, you raged against the God of heaven. You wanted to have nothing to do with him. And all of a sudden, through the quickening power of the Holy Spirit of God, a light that was never in your mind and heart all of a sudden appears. And the God of heaven is subduing you with sovereign grace. He's bringing you to an end of, your, of yourself. And he does this through the sweetness of the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave His only one unique Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Praise God for the stone cut without hands. Aren't you thankful for Him? You can enter His kingdom today by trusting and believing in Jesus. For those of you who know Him, don't we look forward to the future with one King who is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our future. Whether you die this side of heaven and God raises your body uh, incorruptible in the future, or whether you're transferred from here to heaven as Jesus comes back and your body still will be translated, right? And changed in the twinkling of an eye. No matter what, our King controls all things. In the end, Jesus controls all things. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the Lord, and the Christ will rule forever and ever. There will be no more sin, no more curse. No more death. Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world are transient at best. Even the U.S.
going to have an end. Earthly kingdoms totter and fall every single day. Men come and go. Presidents come and go. Our answers and our hope can never be in just getting another person in political power. The kingdom of Christ is the one that will never, ever end. So I commend to you today the stone cut without hands. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only worthy king. Cast yourself on him. He's the worthy king. He's kind and he's benevolent. Cast yourself on Jesus. Bow the knee. Bow the heart to King Jesus. And you will find mercy and pardon and grace and forgiveness and eternal life in the kingdom of God that will never end.